You're listening to the About Consent Podcast, episode number four. Welcome to About Consent, the podcast that sparks conversations about creating consent culture, boundary repair, sexual empowerment, orgasm equality, and raising a new sexually conscious and consent-empowered generation. This is a safe, shame-free, judgment-free zone where both survivors and those who support survivors are welcome. I'm your host, Rosalia Rivera. I'm so thrilled about this next episode with Dr. Lidiana Garcia, who is a clinical psychologist who specializes in trauma, sexual abuse, teens, young adults, and motherhood. And she just has such a wonderful way of educating uh, through her own podcast and through her, even through her Instagram page. She just is always offering such valuable information and wisdom on how we can start stepping into our own versions of the healing journeys that we need to get on in order to live our most empowered lives. So this episode was near and dear to me because I know that there are survivors out there who haven't really started reaching out to anyone for help. Maybe they haven't talked to anyone yet. And this episode is so wonderful for the fact that she talks about what you need to do and think about when you're seeking out a therapist to step into your healing journey. And we also talk about um, everything from the inner child work that she's now doing to uh, how to start a healing journey, where you need to kind of start, what things you can actually do and say when you are uh, meeting a therapist for the first time. A lot of people are afraid of the fact that, you know, they're going to have to disclose everything, but she gives guidelines on what you can do. You are in control of your therapy and she talks about, you know, how you can step into it in a really empowered way, setting up the boundaries that you need to so that you feel comfortable doing the work that you need to do with someone that you trust. So I'm thrilled for this episode. So grateful that uh, she shared all of her uh, wonderful information with us, and I know you're going to love it. So without further ado, here's the episode with Dr. Lidiana Garcia. So I am thrilled to be here today with Dr. Lidiana Garcia. I discovered her a while back through Instagram. Actually, I think it was through the We All Grow Network and and found out about her and her work. And I was immediately drawn to her messages of, you know, obviously being that she is a psychologist, her work around healing, but specifically for, for me, it was very relatable because she also helps uh, child Uh, sexual abuse and child abuse victims and survivors, as well as domestic violence uh, survivors. And because she's also Spanish speaking, um, I was really also drawn to that because I think that the Latinx community doesn't really seek out as much mental wellness therapies or uh, holistic practices that could really help them. And so as I started researching more about her, I just became really enthralled I don't know what the other word would be, but like really just fascinated by her approach to it. And then listening to her podcast, 
uh, Beyond Resilience podcast, which is also amazing. Highly recommend that you check that out. And so I had to invite her to come on and talk about some of the current work that I've noticed she's been doing more recently, um, which I find is so important and something that because, again, being a Latinx therapist, I think that having that cultural perspective is very powerful if you're going to step into a healing journey. So I'm going to talk about that. But before I continue going on and on about her, I want to introduce her. So welcome, Dr. Lidiana Garcia. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure to be here. So please introduce yourself a little bit more with your specialties and what you do, how you help your patients. Yeah, so now I'm changing. I'm a Boricua psychologist (laughs) in terms of how I identify myself. And I was born and raised in the island with the heat of the tropical sea, and it was amazing. I even studied there, but I moved to LA to do my internship. So I'm a licensed in California. And in my specialty, in my work, what I do, I have a private practice, and I work mostly now with adults, but I also work with adolescents and teens. That's actually the population that got me into the field. I love working with youth. And I specialize in sexual abuse survivors, and I like to talk it more as survivors or even not putting anything at the end. And anyone that has survived trauma, and I've been working in the trauma field for over 10 years, mostly before was in community mental health services here with a lot of Latinx families and their children's. And nowadays I do that more in my office. I also have recently been more focusing on somatic kind of coping skills. So I've been doing a lot of that more because the healing is not only the mind. The mind is like the up, you know, is the top part of the development. And sometimes we overfocus in it and trauma lies in our bodies. So I've been also doing a lot of my own healing with my body. And it has been fascinating how I feel like that has helped me so much and has moved me way beyond of just talking about it. So that's one of my interest and I mean I used to dance and that was one of my saviors when I was an adolescent I don't know if my how my life would have been without that and that kept me busy a lot so which I know with um early you know like risk behaviors in adolescents a lot of times if, if they have the time and I did not have the time because I was also teaching dance so that was great and Besides of that, I also do immigration evaluations. And in that, for those of you that have no idea what I mean, it's more evaluations for anyone that's seeking asylum or seeking a spouse to get their visa, get their residency, and other kind of similar evaluations. And then besides that, I'm also a mom. I have a four-year-old who, after I had him, everything went loose. <laughs> everything went really south for me. I, even though I was in the trauma field for so long, I, I was like, well, I have mostly small T's, and to differentiate, the big T's tend to be the, which is more a big trauma, tends to be what people are used to knowing, like a car accident, sexual abuse, um, uh, earthquakes, like something big, and the small T's are more of those that are subtle and that some people can minimize but they still have an impact because how I define trauma it's more of a memory that was not encoded that was still kind of not processed and it has a lot of it's loaded with a lot of different emotions and triggers and all that so I had a lot of little small t's but I was 
after I had my son, I realized that there was more to it. And I think my, most of my trauma was pre-verbal, which makes it really hard. So for all of those mamas that as soon as postpartum, they feel like a black cloud hit them, just know that you're not alone. I, that was me. And I was like, what's going on? And that's when I sought the somatic-based therapy. And that was really helpful and, and a lot of support and seeking out. And it's still something that I'm still processing it now that I'm on the other end. And that's why that prompted me, honestly, to start working on my inner child. Because, yes, I learned some coping skills to bring me back and to regulate myself. But that trauma, I feel, is still there. So that's how I'm processing now with the inner child work. Wow. Okay. So I, I'm jotting stuff down as you're talking because there's a lot of things that I want to unpack there. So uh, to start, um, you mentioned that you're now moving into somatic. Um, and I know that that is probably relatively new, um, especially for, you know, when most, uh, I know for my mom, for example, who is old world, you know, um, you know, she was raised in El Salvador. She grew up in El Salvador before we moved there. I was also born there. So I came when I was five, but for her, uh, and I know for a lot of the Latinx community, when they think of therapy, they think of just this like person who's sitting there listening to you and you're paying the money to just like, you know, unload in a sense. Yeah. Um, but I know that, um, you know, from my own experience going to therapy and um, just knowing what is out there now, that it's a much different experience. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about what somatic is for those that don't know. And I, you know, I've been um, learning about somatic as well and completely agree with what you're saying. It's, you know, ties into your nervous system. And as much as we can process and verbally like express ourselves and all of that is great. But when you're a child, it, it gets trapped that much more, I believe in our system. And then we, if we don't process it, and as you talked about having like smaller traumas, like it can layer and layer and layer. Right. So, um, could you, uh, you know, talk more about somatic, what that is and, and how that helps um, and, and why you're so fascinated with it now? Yeah. And I'll talk from my perspective. I'm by no means a somatic expert. It's such a huge field. But definitely when I started the trauma field, I had a supervisor that she was the one that introduced me to that idea over 10 years ago, how our bodies hold the trauma because we have different types of memories. And I always get confused about the specific name. I think it's procedural memory. And it's more about, you know, the it includes the body. That's why when you learn how to ride a bike, unless you had a trauma, like a physical trauma or something, you will know how to ride a bike, you know, later on in life. You might stumble, but you will still be there. So it's that, that memory that is encoded, like in the muscles and all that. And, and then that, that got me fascinated. And, and then, you know, again, with the whole memory development, when I say pre-verbal in my case, Usually, for the most part, children around age two is when they develop the narrative memory. So that's when they can do a chronological memory and say things like verbally, because that's when they have now the verbal, mm -hmm. if they had it at two. But anything, anything else can be encoded at the same time pre-verbal. And that's why a lot of times, if the trauma happens during those infancy and first years, a lot of it could be more like maybe a pain that you've been having. Maybe you bump always in that leg. Maybe being aware of what's going on in your body and in terms of how I see it 
I'm also training in EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, and I love their conceptualization of trauma, which is kind of more, again, that's what I'm talking about, a memory that the body is trying to, body does not like to just leave something that is not kind of um, process. If it's something that it's stuck, the body's like, okay, let me try to figure out, let me try to figure out. But what happens is when we go through something that is traumatic or intense, that that piece of a puzzle is like all those pieces get get kind of misplaced. So the body's trying to put the puzzle together, but it, they cannot find where are these pieces. And that same happens in terms of our body. Um, so somatic is anything of just noticing what's going on in your body. Where do you hold your tension? Where do you hold your feelings? And then noticing if your um, heartbeat, your temperature, your posture. Sometimes like a lot of times we are hunching when we're, uh, when, we're in, when, when we feel shame. You know, there's a lot of like images that you can see in, in the animal world in terms of how animals react when they feel certain things and how they react. And then look at yourself, look at yourself in the mirror, like observe your sensations and temperature can be a good one. And then I love, I love um, the model, the trauma resiliency model was the one that I took recently. And it was so comprehensive and at the same time, so simple because it talks about the basic of whether you're regulating in terms of nervous system. And, and I'm talking now parasympathetic nervous system that we're in that regulated rest and digest mode. But as soon as our body interprets that there's a threat via our amygdala and our, you know, all those kind of things and our body goes like, uh Oh, there's something and it could be a trigger. It could be a real threat. Then usually ideally we can orient ourselves wait, is that a tiger? I mean, I'm going to talk in terms simple. So is that a tiger? And is a tiger coming my way? Then we can decide, and this happens in nanoseconds, whether are we going to fight or flight? And those aren't the basics. There's more. But in terms of like, are we going to fight the animal, run away? Do we have a, a space that we can jump up? And depends on what kind of cat, because I said a tiger, they can jump up, you know? Or are we going to just shut down and freeze as a way to let them know that we're dead or something? And hopefully they won't kill us, you know? So those are like, I know I'm talking very basic, but those are very basic responses that our body has. And what happens is whenever we experience something that is traumatic, and probably all of you that are listening have, have had this happen, like let's say you're in a car and you feel like you're going to, like somebody's going to hit you, you feel like this adrenaline rush. For me, it's usually like I feel like an energy coming from the bottom all the way up. And then it's hard for me to shake that up. It usually lasts like maybe like several minutes to an hour. Mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. part of the adrenaline and in that case I was able like nothing happened but if something would have happened then all that adrenaline was not used to do something maybe in that case I was able to move the car but if I was not able to move the car and I get crushed it's all that gets stuck so it's trying to imagine like we're like maybe it's stuck where is it stuck and when I work in somatics I help people bring awareness to their body to their breath to their temperature and just notice and a lot of times your body will tell you like what sensations you feel, is this something that feels okay, feels regulated or not? And then to also help them figure out that there's part of our body all the time that are regulated. Maybe your heartbeat is super intense, maybe you feel tension, but maybe your legs feel neutral. Even if it doesn't feel comforting, if it feels neutral, let's pay attention to our legs. Mm -hmm. And that way by shifting our attention, usually the other kind of lowers. And there's many other skills. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I, that is really powerful because I feel we aren't ever taught to really listen to our bodies to begin with, which makes sense when we're sort of on this autopilot and then we start to feel anxiousness and we don't really know mm -hmm. where it comes from. And there wasn't anything 
that may have even seemed to have triggered it, but unconsciously our body knows, right? And yeah. I, I can see how that can express itself. And I, I know for myself, I'm still trying to find the root of some of my anxieties. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it doesn't seem like it's from anything, but you know, obviously it must be some like locked in body memory is, is essentially yeah. what you're saying, right? Yeah, and the hard part is like, when I work with, uh, with, with people that have been touched by a sexual related violence, a lot of times the grooming piece and all that, it was like this gaslighting of like, not what you're seeing or feeling is not true. And then if, if that is a person that during childhood was also in that, um, their caregivers were constantly telling them, no, that's not true. You should not feel this way. You should not sense that way. So usually that people kind of disconnect from the neck down. And that's when I usually see with a lot of my clients that have had one, two, three or more incidents of sexual related violence traumas that they usually are not like whenever I try to go to their bodies, we have to do it very, very subtle because they learn to disconnect from their bodies as a way to survive. Because in the moment that that was happening by them disconnecting from their body that helped them not to feel anything. So now I'm like helping them to like, let's go back to our bodies in a very subtle, gentle way. And that tends to be hard. So also when you're listening, just don't go straight to it because it could be triggering. Just know that, you know, do it slowly. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. And that seems like a very powerful thing because, you know, obviously when it's some kind of physical violence, it's, you know, we're in our bodies all the time and we are trying to, you know, have a normal day. All of a sudden something triggers us and and it's, it's in there trapped and you can't get it out. And I think that that's, one of the reasons why um, it can be so scary for, I think, survivors to then even want to deal with it, right? And so yeah. a lot of substance abuse can happen because you're trying yeah. to numb that emotion or, or, you know, feeling versus wanting to go and seek help to heal this because they're afraid that this is going to open up Pandora's box, right? Yeah. So talk a little bit about what can someone do to you know, if they're thinking about therapy, but they're afraid because it can seem like, okay, now I have to start opening this up again. And I don't want to, because all their life they've been trying not to think about it. Right. Um, but they've, you know, a lot of times people hit a wall and then they finally realize, okay, I have to do something. And therapy, I think for me has been tremendously helpful. I always recommend it. Sometimes people say, well, I don't feel strong enough or they're exhausted. Right. What are some things that you would recommend to someone um, either before they start therapy or as they're starting and starting to look for who, who, do, how do you know who's the right person? And, you know, it's a lot of questions there. But. I don't know, but yeah, <laughs> I would start with first, you know, identifying what's, what got you to that point. Cause it's, it's obvious, like looking for therapy is not something like, Oh, let me get my hair, my nails done. Let me, you know, let me do grocery shopping. I'm, I need this ingredient for this recipe. It's something that usually takes like, a lot of thinking and some people delay it for months, years. But what was that thing that got you to that point that I'm going to get this now, no matter what. So have that near you and have that intention because for the most part, if you look for someone that specializes in trauma, not necessarily at the beginning, but ideally down the road, you can process the trauma. And if you do, though in those times, you know, you can be unpacking a little bit of that Pandora box. Something else that I think is super important, just because someone is specializes in trauma, 
that is so vague and so you know again so vague and it could be it could mean so many things so ask them there's many different approaches to trauma when i was getting trained initially as as, as soon as i graduated i was getting trained more in exposure therapy and that is considered trauma therapy in the terms that i was helping my clients develop a narrative of what happened going through it helping them cope with the triggers but it was mostly like cognitive like let's let's write the story what happened how do you feel how can we change this but it was like exposed them to it with the idea that down the road they would kind of be desensitized in a way to the emotions and the triggers that happens when they think about that so that way they can function in life I'm not saying completely that's not the best model but in general for many people especially for people with chronic trauma going straight to talk about it might not be the best mm. so I now take a super gentle approach because I believe that the experience of therapy is kind of in itself like a inner child, like a reparenting because the person that you chose, you know, can help you now feel safe with all these different experiences and learning effective coping skills. And for you to feel like empowered that you can handle it. I think it's one of the most important pieces. There's even people that they get there and they might be like, it's okay. I don't need to process it now. And I think that's really important because many people go like, okay, let's talk about it. Or some therapists will start like, you come, you came here so we can talk about what happened in the car that day. But for you to be able to know that that experience can in itself be re-traumatizing, unfortunately, if the person is not aware of all those factors that can get in the way, because by you resharing it, your body will feel everything as if you're back in that moment that's why i think a very gentle approach a very subtle approach finding someone that you feel like go with your gut and if you've been having issues because you there's been a lot of mistrust like maybe like somebody that you love that recommended it maybe you can start there trusting but when you meet with that person try to see if you feel comfortable with that person because talking about what what went wrong with us can be so triggering. So you need someone that can be now supportive because probably you did not have that person. So you want that. So feeling, feeling um, comfortable with that person, it's key as well. Yeah, I agree. And I've even heard, some, you know, people recommend that you almost, it's almost like an interview process. You want to go yes. and see if you like them, if, you know, you have a connection. Um, I know for a lot of survivors, their uh, sense of intuition isn't always as strong right. because they've been taught not to trust it, right? Um, so sometimes that can feel tricky even to know, do I trust this person or not trust them? Um, so I agree. I think it's important that they have to feel really comfortable because otherwise, how can you, you know, develop trust? Mm -hmm. And that's a huge piece, right, for you and your therapist to be able to have that trust factor so that you can open up not feel like that person's going to mislead you or betray you or something, right? Because that's in a past experience. So I, I completely agree. Yeah. One of the things that I also wanted to ask you about, and I think that for, you know, I deal with a lot of parents, right? Because I help parents to learn how to teach their children about um, body safety and, and consent. I find that when survivors have now become mothers it's this whole new experience and you talked about you know the whole postpartum experience do you find that um that ends up becoming a whole other sort of layer that 
is almost re-traumatizing. And can you speak to that? Like, what do you recommend someone do if they find themselves experiencing those, those situations? Yeah, I, I, I experienced that. So I would definitely say, and today I was sharing with a friend actually, and, and, you know, most people will go like, well, we all, I mean, the moms, we all been there. We've all been in that sleep deprivation. You know, it's hard. Every baby's hard. There's no, just hard babies. And sometimes, you know, I know she did it with all her intention and she tried to like help me. And I was like, yeah, but I felt this cloud that came over me and I felt like the movie was out there and I was just watching. So I went into what I call the low sound, like the freeze numbing response. And I could not, I, I was not feeling like I was connecting with my child. And I was seeing all this other mom like say, oh my God, I'm not sleeping, but I'm enjoying this. And I'm like, what's wrong with me? And that's when I started figuring out because the other important topic is intergenerational trauma. And my parents came to help during my postpartum and they shared a little bit more about some information that happened when my mom had me around three weeks that now I just, it just clicked. It was like the puzzle, it's like the intergenerational like family like puzzle it was like, oh. And then I learned some more stuff about my mom when my mom was an infant. And then I learned more stuff when my grandma my maternal grandma was an infant and I'm like, no wonder I'm feeling so clueless and so detached and it made completely sense. So what I would say is for anyone, and, and that for me was, I mean, so far it has been infancy. Now my son is four and yes, it's a difficult stage in terms of, you know, them demanding their own way. And sometimes we don't have time, blah, 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 all that. But now I feel more grounded and I have done you know, a lot of work. So it's not that I haven't, but I don't feel that cloud coming over. And that's how I'm assessing it. That's how it makes sense for me in terms of like, I think around four, yes, there was a lot of things that happened to me, but it was not that traumatic. That is, it's kind of numbing me to feel like I can parent my child. For some people can be adolescents. I, I work with a lot of adolescents that go usually around that, you know, years is a lot of the ones that I've seen is when the sexual related violence happens. And then I've also worked with families that sexual related traumas is, you know, intergenerational. Like mom had it, the aunt had it, and it's usually an uncle or cousin or someone. And that continues to repeat. And even though they try, and, and I hate when I hear them say that, you know, but I did everything I, I thought was to protect them. And I don't know what else could I've done. And, you know, so a lot of times it's all those factors that they were not accounting or they were overprotecting or they were doing all these other kind of things. So I would say, yes, whenever you feel like, like, like there's something else that is being between besides the normal difficult stages, that's how I felt it for me. It was very censored. Mm -hmm. And so because it's such a difficult time and moms are overwhelmed, um, you know, what I would recommend from my perspective and what I went through, because I did also experience postpartum, was that that the whole piece of self-care, what, what kind of um, self-care can someone do besides the, like, you know, try to get more sleep or, you know, take a bath or what kinds of things would you recommend, um, you know, from a mental wellness perspective that moms can try to do to, you know, kind of mitigate, kind of ease some of this so that once they have either more time or capacity could actually go and get help like are there things that that they yeah. could be doing in the meantime i usually recommend connecting with other moms that's what saved me i honestly think like if i 
I mean, it was like all godsend. Like my midwife had uh, started a group around when my son was five weeks. And then that kind of was not able to continue, but we continued it. We, we did a Facebook group. We continued meeting on Mondays. We call it the Mondays Moms Group. And we would shift in terms of the houses, but that helped me. And in the past, you know, like now we live in such an individualistic kind of culture and we idea idealize like independence and all that and how much more can we do as moms right what else can we put into our you know we want to be perfect at work perfect at a mom perfect at this it's like what else can we put yeah (laughs) right but connecting to other moms connecting to other human beings like connection is one of the most healing pieces Mm -hmm. because through connection we're kind of like Again, it's like giving that piece of like that reparenting. It's like giving that piece of feeling comfort with, of, of course, with people that can offer that mm-hmm. because not everyone is like that. So I would definitely recommend try to connect with people. And I know nowadays life can be so crazy, but even there's so many Facebook groups. There's so many like popping Facebook groups about moms or, or all those kind of things. Mm -hmm. Or maybe if you take your child to a class, like maybe connect with other parents there, you know, or the caregivers, but I would definitely say connect with other people that are in the same boat. So that way you don't feel like you're going crazy Mm -hmm. and you have some support. I would yeah. say that would be the biggest one because the other ones are more, you know, like whatever you enjoy. And a lot of times we can't with because of time, but connection. Mm-hmm. Okay. I love that. And I agree. I think, I think one of the biggest issues with survivors is that uh, they have shame. And so they're afraid to connect because they are thinking someone's going to find out or someone's going to know whether they're judging them or who knows what, you know, other fears that they have. But when you do make those connections and you step in and you realize, you know, everybody has something and we're all in this together and moms want to support moms because I don't know any mom that doesn't want to support another mom and help her. You know, everybody's going through these struggles. So I think, you know, taking that leap of faith and seeking out a group is I think an awesome way to, to get started in that self-help. And I think you're right. It's like, we are, we idolize independence, like, oh, I can handle all of it and I can do all of it. And we've moved away from community. And, uh, you know, so I I think that there's a lot of power in that. So I I absolutely love that. Uh, The other question that I I wanted to ask you regarding the small traumas that you were talking about, and then we can get into the inner child because that's really where, where I'm really excited to talk to you about. But Small traumas is something that I think gets um, diminished, right? Because everyone's like, oh, well, this big thing happened to me. So somebody else who doesn't have a big traumatic event will think, oh, well, my mine isn't trauma, but it's still bothering me. But I guess it's not trauma. So there must be something weak about me or, you know, there's a lot of like negative self-talk. So I, I listened to one of your episodes, which I will link in the show notes because I I remember um, listening to that and, and having that realization, you know, because I, I know so many survivors that have had complex trauma. And so when I looked at it from my own perspective, I was like, well, I don't even, although when I had childhood trauma, I didn't even remember all of it. I still have many blocked memories. So I'm like, maybe it wasn't as big. And, you know, I experienced date rape when I was 17 and that only happened once. So compared to other, you know, so like you're always comparing your trauma to others. Can you talk a little bit about what 
you mean by small traumas. And again, I'll link that episode because I think it's so important for people to hear. Um, but just sort of a quick and dirty like explanation of it because I think it's important for people to realize all trauma is trauma. Yeah. Um, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so again, going back to like anything that prompts an intense reaction and anything that prompts that kind of intense reaction and then we go into how we interpret it which can actually perpetuate it and make it even worse mm -hmm. if we go into interpreting like there's something wrong with me and the shame shame is one of the most detrimental emotions and when you look about how it impacts the nervous system it's it's super super bad so a lot of times that constant putting yourself constantly in shame can be even a small t in that sense so it could be something like maybe a loss of um, like like a move, like moving from one place to another, transitions like from grade school to now middle school or transitions in life. Um, sometimes even people minimize losing a pet. Sometimes it's like, oh, come on, it's an animal. It's not a human being. Um, things like... I'm trying to think of other like small teas that are usual, like issues with friends, like losing a friend, but more like you had an argument with the friend. It's not like the person died or something. Any kind of thing that for you, you can kind of like have an intense reaction to it or it may put you in a freeze response. Because again, some people go straight to a freeze response. That can, and it's something that then you stayed in your mind and you start questioning and all those kind of things that can be it. In terms mm -hmm. of childhood, it could have been those moments when you had like, maybe you were expressing yourself and your parents or your caregivers were like, no, you cannot do that. And I'm going to do that. And consistently, or, or they kind of like gaslighted you like, no, that's not what you feel. And not, that's not true. Or cousins may making fun of you, you know, mm -hmm. all those kind of things can be considered a small T. So in general, so many things. But when we become parents and we have a child in front of us, I would say that would be one of the easiest way of figuring out what can be a small T for you. Notice whatever triggers the heck out of you mm -hmm. in your child. Maybe notice the stage that they are and what triggers you. And that can give you an insight, huh? And maybe ask yourself, was I like this? Was I allowed to be like this, first of all? And if I behave like this, what would happen? And a lot of times we were raised in, you know, older generations and now in the Latinx community, very into like, they had a saying, los niños hablan cuando las gallinas mean, that I never know how to translate, it's like the children speak when the chicken pee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sounds weird. But it's like, you know, that whole thing of authoritarian. Yeah. So like, look for that. But children, it's like a mirror. Mm -hmm. That would be one of the easiest way to kind of know what are some of your small teas. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I, I never thought to look at it in that perspective. So now I'm going to, that's a whole, totally new lens to look, look at it through. So that's fascinating. And I also want to add that I think, um, you know, people forget that everybody has different levels of some sensibilities, right? So what is going to be really traumatic for one person is not going to be for another. So I think that that, um, you know, really highlights that point. So yeah, it's okay. so important even in families because mm -hmm. you can have like something that the whole family went through. Let's say a car accident and, and maybe it was a small car accident that nobody got like real, but one person then continues to be stuck in there and then the, all of the family members will be like, what's, you know, like, it's fine, we're fine. So it, it and that's why when, when people say things like, but we were all raised by the same mom and dad, nope, you weren't. 
<laughs> there were different times, the different contexts, different pregnancies, uh, you know, all of that. So, and the temperament. So yeah. always just, just trust. I mean, just, just know that if you feel it, then it's true. Yeah. It's true for you. Yeah. Okay. I love that. Thank you. Welcome. Um, okay. Let's talk about the inner child work. What is that? What does it mean? What, how does that, how does, how do you work with someone in relation to that? Can, and um, again, I'll link up to some of the work that you've been doing around that and, and specific even posts, um, you know, so explain for those that um, are new to that concept. Yeah. So how I'd like to see it again, because it's something that is kind of new for me too. And I'm just going, spirit is speaking through me and I'm just going through it. But what I would definitely say in terms of how I define it is more, pieces of ourselves during different developmental stages that we went either through a small T, a big T, or even a seed trauma, which is more of the cumulative, like racism, prejudice, um, you know, like socioeconomical state status, stuff like that. And it defined you in that sense, like in that moment, there was something that clicked in you. And then after that is like a combination of other things. Like maybe when you were like, too, and your caregivers had a really hard time of you asserting whatever you wanted and then you learn I cannot assert what I want and now you're in your 30s and you're having difficulty of being assertive mm-hmm. so that could be an inner child kind of thing and work with that toddler years mm-hmm. so in general like I go with my intuition in terms of my own inner child stuff I know I was raised very traditional Puerto Rican in terms of being concerned about what other people thought of us. So like behaving for, for my family was huge to the risk of your personality and who you were like in essence. But if you would behave, that would be like, you would be a good child, you know? So all those things, a lot of times includes a lot of shaming in the parenting in the, you know, in the Latinx communities, a lot of shaming, a lot of fear, el cuco, you know, like something bad is going to happen to you if you don't do this. And a lot of times that was when we were, let's say, four or five. And how I love working about the inner child is that God kind of encoded it in that moment. And you continue to hold these beliefs in your 30s, your 40s, your adulthood. But if you really unpack them, when that happened, you were in a so different cognitive level, but you continue to feel and think that way. Mm-hmm. So that's what I do. So in my inner child work, I like exploring different stages and, you know, like you can think about your childhood and divide it in different stages and, and how, how was it? Who was there? You know, how was their response to you? How they treated you? Um, and maybe if you have no idea, cause there's a lot of people that have, you know, it just, don't can remember just if there's any pictures look at the pictures and if there's no picture maybe ask anyone that was around the time that you were a child how was I you know how would I behave and all those kind of things to explore that and just notice if there's any stage that you go like whoa I can see that and if not if you have any child again just notice that stage mm-hmm. and how is it for you when you see your child being rejected by a friend or rejected by someone yeah, and it's fascinating because I I feel like I'm reparenting myself now before um, I respond to my child. You know, a lot of times I know when I with my first my first son, um, as I was learning, I was realizing that when he wouldn't do what I wanted, I would you know that that sense of anger would come up, and then um, if I did yell at him, I would feel horrible. 
and realize, okay, why am I responding like that? I didn't like when that was the response I got. And I can imagine that, you know, it's just terrifying when it's a big adult and you're little. And I started having all these realizations. Um, and as I, you know, now I'm in with my third child, I'm still having all of these, you know, it's, it's such an evolutionary process, but more importantly, I'm realizing all the things that my mom, you know, had done with me that she thought, you know, were the right way to do it because that's how her father. And so, you know, when you talk about intergenerational trauma, I get it now. I actually just recently found out that I have, um, my, my great grandfather is a slave. And so it really opened up this new perspective of understanding. Cause I would think, well, how could a father be so, um, strict and so physically abusive, which we consider now physical abuse, but back then was normalized. And that was the way that he was raised and raised my mom and my mom normalized it for herself to say this was the appropriate way. I turned out to be a good person. So therefore that must have been the right way and then raised us. So you start to, you know, look at that. And and now as you're mentioning what you're saying, it's like I haven't even started to look at that early of a childhood. I think about it, you know, kind of in a retrospect way, but not in a detailed way and then mirroring it with my child. So that's fascinating. I love that. Um, what do you, like, how do you work with clients on that? And, and is that something that you would recommend um, for a specific type of clients? Or, you know, do you work with um, someone with sexual abuse relating to that? Like, who would you recommend seeks out that particular type of therapy? I recently started using it myself and, and I'm using it out with my clients. I also have, you know, I always keep forgetting about the other things besides the podcast. I also have like a membership and this month, well, I don't know when this is. Oh, is that through Patreon? Yeah. Okay. So September edition is all inner child healing. So over there I put like a lot of handouts and resources to kind of help everybody in audio and video on it. But if anyone joins afterwards, they can still see. I believe, I believe so. I believe so. Um, I'm still new to the health system, but with my clients that have experienced sexual abuse, I, I usually see it as different stages. First of all, I also try to gouge where are they? And what are they needing at this moment? If somebody is having like a lot of difficulties in their lives, they don't have a job, they're undocumented, they don't have any family support. I'm not for like from an ethical personal perspective, going to go and, and process the trauma. I'm going to work more on helping them regulate themselves, learn coping skills so that way they can get that basic all kind of or somewhat stable. Mm-hmm. So the inner child work can be triggering. Because when you go there, it could be like, oh my God, that happened. And the reparenting requires so much of strength and also finding that inner parent Mm -hmm. and removing whatever you don't need. Because a lot of times we internalize that abusive parent or that abusive person and we talk to ourselves that way. Mm -hmm. So when we are trying to do reparenting, we have to have like a different kind of inner parent that is able to reparent that inner child. I know this is all like all these different parts, but it's so important. So if somebody goes jumping in into that inner child and goes like, okay, I discovered that around that time I had that, but then you're talking to yourself, reparenting, like get over that. Right, right. Fine now. 
that's actually going to be worse. So I usually like go step by step. And the people that I've started doing more of the inner child is the people that I find that they already have all these other kind of layers. Like they're able to recognize their body. They're not in a necessarily like complete survival mode. They can get out of low zone or high zone. They can come back. They have some kind of support. Mm -hmm. They are stable and we can go there. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And that's great to know. Um, yeah, because that's the, that's the piece that I think is, um, really sort of intimidating for someone who's wanting to step into therapy and there's just so many, um, you know, options and they're not sure where to start. So that, that's very helpful. Yeah. Um, so to wrap things up, because I think that there's, I mean, there's so much more I could talk to you for hours about this. Um, but I will post all of the links um, so people can connect with you and your Patreon page. I think that that's great for those that are ready to step into doing inner child work. They can find you and connect with you there. Um, what would you, uh, you know, to say to someone who has experienced abuse um, in childhood, whether it was just uh, physical or sexual, um, that is thinking about, you know, therapy or, or thinking about some kind of healing modality even, um, that, but they're just afraid, you know, and they haven't told anyone before and it's just sort of brand new. Uh, what would you say to them or recommend, um, you know, so that they can take that first step? Yeah. Nowadays, there's so many, um, it's easier to find information about therapists. Like a lot of them have Instagram accounts or have like YouTube videos or something. I would definitely like do some of the research about the people that you want to go about and see them and, and see how they interact and all that. And I know social media can be a, a facet, but try to see if you find that that they feel authentic, that they feel like they have experience working with sexual abuse because it's such a complex population. Right. So it's not just trauma, it's, it's a very different one. So kind of like having all of that and looking for them and to know that you don't have to go in and tell it all. Like mm -hmm. you don't, you can share as much as, as much as you want in therapy. Like, as you know, many people come and they're so afraid because they feel like I'm going to pressure them to like just spill over their, their beans. And I'm like, no, no, no. It's like, we're going to go as slow as, as, as you need to. Yeah. When I develop the relationship and let's say we've been working for six months and a year and I already have it. And I see that they're holding back. Sometimes I push a little bit because I feel like they can push, but I, I don't start my sessions. And if you go to someone, just know that you don't have to stick with them. Right. You can keep on, you know, looking until you find someone. Okay. Well, I, I just wanted to touch on that last piece um, that you were saying about, you know, all of the information that's out there and accessible. And then you mentioned um, once they can connect with someone to not just sort of like open up Pandora's box, right? Because I think that that's also the fear. And I've, I've heard that from many survivors that say, well, you know, I, I've actually heard someone say, I feel like if I go to someone, it's just all going to come out and I'm going to end up like in the hospital, like, you know, because it's just going to be so much. Um, so I think, you know, would you say that if they went to someone to say, you know, I want to start slow, like, should they yes, like um, verbalize that to start with and say, you know, I'm not ready for everything, but yeah, um, I would definitely say to maybe write down all those things because a lot of times when we're in the moment, we actually start 
like, I mean, I'm, I bet I'm not the only one that have been with someone and you start sharing this and you're like, whoa, I just share all of this, right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes we do, and especially people that have been touched by sexual related trauma, a lot of times they're used to, or they were kind of, you know, boundaries were so loose that it's kind of confusing about how much more, especially if you go to a therapist that you're assuming, I mean, it's confidential, so you assume like you can say it all. But I would say, okay, the other part would be in terms of the model that I'm trained, the trauma resiliency model, it's huge on that piece of going at the pace of the person. So maybe looking at someone that is trained in the trauma resiliency model, and there's, they're trained in many different areas, and I believe there are some in Canada as well and U.S., mm -hmm. but I would say, like, look for someone, and maybe when you're interviewing them via telephone, ask them, like, you know, sometimes I'm, I wonder, you know, if, if I will feel pressured in sessions, that could be a question, or would you pressure me to answer things, or how can I let you know when I don't want to answer something? Mm -hmm. And it might be easier via telephone so you're not right in front of the person, or via email, I've had people that send me like eight to 10 questions and I'm like, wow, that's cool. You know, so you can ask all those things. Like I want to go slower. Is that, is that your style? Um, you can ask them about many other things in terms of their style, their training, their experience with sexual abuse or just in general trauma survivors and, and that. Mm -hmm. And if they're like more into exposure therapy, um, cause it was interesting. I, I did seek my own, somatic so some somatic therapies tend to be a little more an exposure side mm -hmm. or just the personality of the therapist that's never been my personality i tend to go more on the gentle slower pace um, for the person but yeah i would ask them like would, would you do uh, exposure or you know stuff like that right. right okay and that's great to know because i think it's you're right especially for um childhood uh, abuse there is this con this perception that a person who's a figure of authority always yeah. has the authority, right? And so if you don't um, assert those boundaries ahead of time, you don't even realize that you can even make those boundaries. And, you know, so I think that's really great information. And I think uh, anyone listening may get that even as an aha moment that they can even do that. So I think that's yeah. fantastic. Okay, awesome. So um, one of the things that I want to do with this podcast is every guest, I always ask them to offer some piece of advice that they feel would help them with any of these areas. So boundary repair, sexual empowerment, or orgasm equality. So is there anything that you would like to share with the audience on any of those that you feel would help them become empowered? Let's go into the boundary because that's the first one that popped into my head. Okay. I would say that like having those questions that you can ask if you're going to seek out a therapist and writing them in email. Okay. And also like when you meet with that person, like even if you have um, something written, I love using the five senses. So maybe like you already come in and you already have that. So have something written with you or in the phone that says, I don't have, I can, I, I'm just going to share as much as I want today. And you can say that to the person. And if they react in a like, whoa, what, what's going on? Then you know that that's not your therapist. And you can always stop the session and not have to continue coming on and on and on just because you started with someone. Perfect. I love that. And I do want to also just add that just because you did not have a great experience with one person, you shouldn't give up. 
you know, there is someone else out there for you. It's just, you have to, you know, just keep, uh, keep looking and, and finding and, and follow your, your gut, you know, start learning how to trust your gut. So, yeah, I, I think that's actually really great. And I've never heard that before. So I, I'm going to put that in the bank and make sure that I, um, you know, always, always shout that out from you because, um, most people just don't know that, you know, especially anyone who's experienced abuse. So, well, Dr. Lidiana, this has been a pleasure. I, you have given us so much valuable information. Um, I will, again, as I said, post all of the links and where can people find you? Where is your preference of, you know, how people can connect with you? Yeah. So I would say two ways. One is Instagram. That's, well, I have two handles, but at Dr. I mean, dr.lidiana Garcia, L-Y-D-I-A-N-A Garcia. So that will be one. That's where I'm mostly. And then the other one will be via email. So info at drlidiana Garcia, all of it together without any dot. I mean, at the end.com. So info at drlidianagarcia.com. So those will be the two best ways to get a hold of me. Perfect. And you also have a podcast, you, yes. which is also people can find out more on Instagram as well. And what is the handle for that one? So the handle for that one is at the Beyond Resilience Live. And because that's the name of the podcast, the Beyond Resilience Live. And the reason I wanted to name it that way is because I find that resilience is like bouncing back. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's not enough. <laughs> Sometimes it, 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 and we never like just bounce back life and our context change. So I'm wanting more like that idea that you can beyond the resiliency, like come back into this, into a new realm of opportunities and realities after you kind of heal from a holistic perspective. And you can find us in, in all the main ones, iTunes, Teacher, Google Play, Spotify, and it's bilingual. So that's also important to kind of mention. So each episode it's in English and then in Spanish. Yes. Yes. Um, I've actually played some for my mom and she's found them very helpful. So I love your podcast. So definitely tune into that. So, so many great resources and interviews. So, um, highly recommend it. Well, thank you again so much. And thank you all to the listeners who are here. If you have any questions, please reach out to Dr. Liviana and, uh, I look forward to connecting with you in the next podcast. Thanks for listening to the About Consent podcast. I stand for consent culture, shame-free sexual literacy, orgasm equality, and our right to freedom and truth. If you stand for this too, be sure to subscribe. And I would be most grateful if you took one minute to post a five-star rating and review on iTunes so that others may also find this information. Share this podcast with everyone you know so we can start to create consent culture one conversation at a time. My friends, the revolution is here. Get on board.